Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. For the last two weekends here at Hope, beginning Easter weekend and then last weekend as well, we have really looked at the centrality of the gospel with two simple statements. The first of those statements is, you in Christ. And that speaks to the reality that Christ died for you and I. When Christ died on the cross, the gospel teaches us that we died with him. He took all of our sin on himself and Christ died so that we could be forgiven. That is, you in Christ forgiven. The second reality of the gospel that we've been looking at is not just you in Christ forgiven, but Christ in you set free. Yes, it is true that Christ died for our sins and because of his death we can be forgiven and go to heaven when we die, but that is not the totality of the gospel. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Jesus rose again from the dead and now Christ lives by his spirit in each one of us as believers and the Christian life is not you and me living for Jesus, but it's allowing Christ to live his life through us. So there's the gospel. You in Christ forgiven, Christ in you set free. And last weekend, we looked at a beautiful picture that God gave us that really proclaims this whole message of the gospel, you in Christ forgiven, Christ in you set free, and that's the picture of baptism. We showed the video a moment ago, 95 people last weekend followed Jesus publicly in baptism, and they really preached the message of the gospel. Let me show it to you in a Bible verse we looked at last week. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. It says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Here's what happens in baptism. In baptism, you get the picture of having been buried with Christ. Our sins died with Christ. He took the penalty and the punishment and the payment for our sins. And we were buried with Christ. But Jesus didn't just die. We don't just get buried with Christ. The Bible says now we've been raised to walk in newness of life. Now Christ in us, living through us. And that is the power of the gospel. And all of that is demonstrated through this picture of baptism. But God gave us another picture, another symbol, if you will, that he's called us as Christians to practice. And it's a symbol that, in, that just like baptism proclaims and preaches the message of the gospel. We call this other practice, some call it communion or the Lord's Supper. And together today as a family of faith, we are going to celebrate the glorious truth of the gospel. You in Christ and Christ in you, 
by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. If you have a Bible, <clears throat> I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 26. And I want to read for you a section of Scripture where Jesus first practiced the Lord's Supper with His disciples. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. The Bible says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, He broke it. And He gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Verse 30, after singing a hymn, wouldn't you have loved to have been in the room and heard that? You know what question comes to my mind when I read it? I wonder what they sang. You got Jesus and the disciples on the eve of the crucifixion. Jesus is teaching them about his death, burial, and resurrection. He's giving them this picture. And then the Bible says, they just started singing. What did they sing? They they, they probably went back to the Psalms and grabbed maybe something like Psalm 22, which shares the great prophecies of the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I don't know what they sang, but man, I'd love to have been in the room and heard it, wouldn't you? Listen, we're going to get to be there one day and get to hear him sing. Amen? Some of you don't sound too excited about it, but it's going to (laughs) happen. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. At Hope, we we teach all the time that Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a what? Say it out loud. Relationship. At its core, Christianity is not a religion. A religion is a system of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations that we say somehow will help us earn our way to God. Listen, there's no religion that can do that, right? That's a failed attempt. Christianity is not a religion of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, rules and regulations, systems and ceremonies, rituals where we try to somehow earn favor with God. Christianity is God doing for us what we could never do left to ourselves and in Christ giving us the opportunity to be born again into a personal relationship with God. So Christianity is not about situations and ceremonies and rituals and all that kind of stuff. Then I know maybe one of the questions we'd have is, well, if Christianity and following Jesus is really not a religion but a relationship, then why are practices like baptism and the Lord's Supper, why do we do this? Because listen, I'm going to be completely transparent. There's nothing in (coughs) baptism or the Lord's Supper that in and of itself is mystical or spiritual or magical. It doesn't earn us any favor with God. It's not a means by which we experience the grace of God. They are simply pictures and symbols that Jesus gave us to represent the great truths of the gospel. And if Christianity is really about a relationship, why do we still do this, what we're going to do today as a family of faith? Well, in in Paul's writing about this particular practice, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and Paul added a phrase, or he gave us a phrase that Jesus uh, said that the disciples did not record in the gospels. 
you got to remember, when the gospel writers were writing their accounts of the Lord's Supper, they were writing descriptively. Say, what do you mean by that? They were simply describing what happened in the room to allow us to see in to that encounter. When Paul wrote about it in 1 Corinthians, he was not writing descriptively. He was writing prescriptively. He was prescribing for us how we as the church are to practice this thing called the Lord's Supper. And when Paul wrote, I want you to look at a phrase that Paul gave us that Jesus said on the night when he did this with his disciples. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, and he also does it again in verse 25. Read the phrase out loud with me. Do this in remembrance of me. Say it again out loud. Do this in remembrance of me. With that simple phrase, Paul really tells us why we do this. Number one, we do this simply to obey Jesus. You see, what we're going to do this morning as we take the Lord's Supper together, we're doing this because Jesus commanded us to. Jesus said, do this. In the Greek construction of that little phrase that you just read, it's not a suggestion, it's an imperative, meaning that it's a command. It wasn't an option that he was laying on the table. It was something he was calling us to. And here's what I've grown to understand in my own walk with the Lord. The more I grow in my love relationship with Jesus, the more I desire to obey the commands of Jesus. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we have to show Jesus we love him by obeying him. That's not the impetus of the New Testament. I don't have to prove my love to God by obeying Him. Here's what the New Testament teaches. The more I love Him, the more I grow in fellowship with Him, out of the overflow of that love relationship, what is produced in me is a desire and a hunger to please and honor and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to do this today simply in obedience to Jesus. Just like Christians for the last 2,000 years have done. For 2,000 years, Christians have gathered in groups like this in every culture and corner of the world. And in obedience to Jesus, they've taken these two simple things, the bread and the cup, and they've used them to think on the person of Jesus and obey His simple command. So we're going to do it to obey Him. Second reason we're going to do it, Paul tells us, is to remember Jesus. Paul said that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. The word remembrance is a word that simply means memorial. It's a word that indicates bringing back into mind a vivid experience from the past. Like if you go to a a war memorial or you go to some historical monument, the reason that those are there as memorials is to help us remember something that actually happened in history and to stop for a minute and reflect on it. Well, Paul said that Jesus gave us this. We're just not obeying Him today. We're doing this to, to remember Let's just be honest this morning, okay? Church is a good place to be honest, amen? We're going to be honest. Life gets busy. If you can agree with that, say amen. Life gets busy, right? I mean, there's all kind of, and life is busy everywhere, but I just believe, man, in Las Vegas, we got an extra dose of busyness in our city. It is just a fast-paced lifestyle here in our city. And God in His infinite wisdom knew 
that in our pace of life and the busyness of our day and our week and our month and our year, that there would be seasons when we would not stop. I mean, I don't want you to answer out loud. I don't want you to raise your hand. I don't even want you to punch the person next to you. But I want you to answer this in your heart. When's the last time this week or the last couple of weeks, the last month, you just stopped 20, 30, 40 minutes and you just reflected on all that Jesus accomplished for you through his death, his burial, his resurrection. See what happens, we, we get busy and we start going through the motions of life. And Jesus knew that. And so he did us a favor. He gave us a practice that as often as we do it causes all of us to just tell the world around us, hang on, <laughs> I'm going to press pause for a minute and I'm going to sit and I'm going to take a half hour, 45 minutes and I'm just going to think about all that's been accomplished for me by you in Christ Christ in you. I love the way Alan Redpath said it. Look, look at this quote on the screen. He said, It is the one who has given something for us at Calvary, asking each of us to remember his death, to put that at the very center of our Christian experience. It is he who loved us even unto death, calling us out from the busyness and often the barrenness of all our pressure and work, that we might wait upon Him in the stillness of our hearts and worship Him. He points us back, not to His life or example, but to that which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel, the atonement of the cross, the finished work of Calvary, and the open tomb. Let me tell you why Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. It's His invitation to you and me to just chill for a minute. Sit at His feet and just remember all that we have because of Him. So that's what I want you to do today. And I want to give you two statements to help you wrap your heart around this idea of remembering. There, there's a lot we could think about. I mean, when you think about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, there's no end. We, 30, 40 minutes, we could sit here for the next 30 or 40 years and not exhaust everything that's been accomplished for us. So, so I want to try to zero in on two concepts that I want you to really reflect on this morning. Here's the first one. The Lord's Supper reminds us that in Christ we are forgiven. Read that out loud with me. The Lord's Supper reminds us that in Christ we are 
forgiven. Remember what we said the first major component of the gospel is? You in Christ forgiven. The Lord's Supper reminds us about that forgiveness. Did you hear what Jesus said in Matthew 26? He said in verse 28, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. We have been forgiven. Listen to me. God is holy. If you believe that, say amen. God is holy. Now, we spend a whole lot of time in the American church today talking about the love of God and the grace of God and the goodness of God. And listen, all those things are true. God is loving. Amen? God is gracious. Amen? God is good. Amen? We rejoice in all of those things. But none of those things remove the reality that God is holy. And because God is holy, God cannot, God will not be in fellowship with sin. And as human beings, we'd sinned against God. We'd forfeited the right to know God because of our sin. And some people have the idea that God just decided to forgive us. That good old God just decided he was going to overlook our sin, say, don't worry about it. No, listen to me. God is holy. God cannot overlook sin. God has to deal with our sin. And that's what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin on himself. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty. He satisfied the wrath of a holy God against sin in himself. And because of Jesus Christ, you and I can now be forgiven. Forgiven. The word forgiveness. The word forgiveness is a word that means to send away or to cause to stand away from. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, the Bible says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Here's what that means. If Christ had not died, if he not died for our sins, our sin could never be sent away from us. Meaning that every time God saw us, God would see us as deserving of his wrath and deserving of his judgment and deserving of his condemnation. My sin could not be taken away without the death of Jesus. But listen, Jesus Christ died for our sin so that now I can be forgiven. Meaning my sin can be taken away and God no longer sees me as a sinner in need of forgiveness. God sees me as forgiven and as righteous and as holy as Jesus Christ himself. Not because I deserve that. That's the glorious grace of the gospel. We can be forgiven. Now we have a hard time even with the word forgiveness. Because when we use the word, the word that we use, even though it sounds like the same word that God's using... We don't mean the same thing. We'll say to somebody, I forgive you. And what that means is, I forgive you until I need it again. Right? And as soon as I need it again, I'm going to go back to the closet. I'm going to open the door and I'm going to drag it right back out and lay it back on the table. And we're going to bring it up again. Right? I forgive you, but but you just wait until the argument comes up and I need it and I'm going to go get it. Right? And here's what's sad. We think that's how God forgives. Can I give you a definition of the word forgiveness that I hope will bring you joy today? Look at it on the screen. Here's forgiveness. The removal of the guilt 
and shame of sin, past, present, (laughs) and, say it out loud, whoa, Wait, wait a minute, Pastor. You telling me that I'm already forgiven, not just for what I've done, but but in Christ, I'm already forgiven for everything I'm ever going to do? Hey, you do realize that when Jesus died on the cross, all your sins were in the future. Meaning, if the sufficiency of Jesus' death doesn't cover future sins, we're all in trouble. Here's what we learn in Christ. Everything I've ever done, Everything I ever will do has already been paid for through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. All the guilt and all the shame has been removed. Meaning God doesn't see me like that anymore. You say, Pastor, you tell people like that, they're just going to use grace as a credit card for sin. They're going to go live however they want to live. Listen, when you've experienced the grace and the forgiveness that I'm talking about, it changes the way you want to live. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, but I'm telling you, God's birthed in us a desire now to love Him and honor Him and please Him with our lives. That's forgiveness. And, And one of the great things about the teaching of Jesus and the way the Bible lays things out is, Jesus often used different pictures to help us wrap our minds around the great spiritual truths that he was trying to teach us. And there are four pictures that I want to give you from the Bible about this idea of forgiveness to help you understand what it is that you and I are in Christ forgiven. The first picture is found in Psalm 103, verse 12. Look up on the screen at this verse. As far as... As the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The first picture is the picture of a globe. If I was standing here before you with a globe in my hands today, we could all look at that globe. And and if we kind of took our finger on that globe and we started at the south, (coughs) South Pole and we started moving north, on that globe, at some point we're going to hit what? North Pole, right? Come on. It's not a hard question. It's not a trick question. We start at the South Pole. We're moving north. At some point we're going to hit what? North Pole, right? When you hit the North Pole, what happens next? You're going what? Now you're going south, right? Until you hit what? South Pole. And then what happens? Now you're going north again, right? Here's what that means. The distance between north and south is a measurable distance. If God had said in his word, I forgive you and I remove your sins from you as far as the north is from the south, here's what he would have been saying. There's a line. I forgive you, but there's a line. And when you cross it, that's too much. That's too far. But God didn't say, I've removed your sin from you as far as the north is from the south. God said, I've removed your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. And listen, this was written in in Psalm 103 back in a time when most people believed that the world was flat, not round. It's almost like the one who inspired the writing of this knew that it was round. That'll hit some of you at lunch. You go, oh. 
God didn't say, I've removed your sins from north to south. He said east to west. Let's go back to our globe. You start going east on that globe. When do you stop going east? Let me tell you when you stop. When you stop, turn around and go the other direction, right? The principle is this. North and south is measurable. East and west is infinity, meaning you can travel east as long as you want to travel east, and you'll never be going west until you stop, turn around, and go the other direction. The point is this. God has taken your sin, and God has taken my sin, and because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he has forgiven us, and he's removed our sins from us infinity. Forgiveness. Let me give you a second picture. Second picture is in Micah chapter 7, verse 18. One day the prophet Micah was sitting and reflecting on the, the glorious forgiveness of God. Listen to what he said. Who is a God like you? He's just overwhelmed by There's just not anybody else like you. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his people? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast, say the word I've underlined out loud, all. You will cast all, that's an important word, amen, all their sins into, say it out loud, the depths of the sea. First picture is the globe. Second picture is the ocean. I don't know about you, but I love San Diego. People that know me well know I, I love San Diego. When I, when I was growing up in Alabama, San Diego's something we saw them give away on the prices right. You know, we didn't, we didn't know it was like a, a real place. I mean, it was just like the moon. And when I moved here and, and started doing some vacationing down in San Diego, I got to be honest with you, I've had several serious conversations with the Lord about stopping me in a desert when San Diego's only four hours <laughs> further to the west. I love San Diego. I love going down. We love the beaches. And, and one of the, my favorite things to do with my youngest daughter, Faith, is we go down to the, to the beach and we'll go out and we'll just kind of get about this deep in the water up to our knees and we'll get a couple of buckets and we'll just walk up and down long distances looking for seashells. And we'll just grab seashells and we'll put them in our buckets. You know, we've got a whole bunch of them at home that we've collected through the years. And what's amazing to me about that is you can be walking along and you're in just this deep of water and you look down and you see a seashell. And by the time you go from here to there, it's gone. And it's just not like kind of gone. It's completely gone. It's like it was never. So I've learned to, you know, as soon as I see one, I kind of do one of those. Where did you put your foot on it? And as soon as I put my foot on it, then I say, oh, dear God, let that be a seashell, right? Because then all of a sudden you realize that could be something else and that might hurt. But, but you just put your foot there and you, you do the best you can to get down there and try to find that. But oftentimes, even when you do that, it's gone. And we're talking about this deep of water. God said, I've taken all your sin. And he didn't say, I've put it in the shallows. He said, I've put it in the depths of the sea. Listen, oceanographers tell us that the Mariana Trench is the deepest part of the ocean that we have on record. The Mariana Trench is over 36,000 feet deep. 
Now, to give you some kind of a box to put that in, the tallest mountain on planet Earth is Mount Everest. Mount Everest is just over 29,000 feet tall. So here's what oceanographers tell us. The depths of the ocean that we know are deeper than the heights of the highest mountains on planet Earth. The Mariana Trench is not only 36,000 feet deep, it is five times wider than it is deep. Meaning, it is 120 times bigger than the Grand Canyon. And God said, I've taken all of your sin and I have buried it in the depths of the sea where it will never surface again. How did that happen? Christ said, this is my blood which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. I'll give you a third picture. He started with the globe and then got the picture of the ocean. Third picture is the human body. Here's what I want you to do. I want everybody in the room to sit up on the edge of your seat. All right? Come on, you got to move. Sit up on the edge of your seat. Now, I want you to look on the screen at this verse out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 17. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. He's talking about God here. For you have cast, say the word out loud, all my sins behind your back. Everybody on the edge of their seat? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the middle of your back. Go. What are you laughing at? You know why you're laughing, right? Because you can't. If you can, something's not right, right? (laughs) Something is not functioning properly if you can accomplish this exercise. You hear it? God's taken your sin, and he's put it in a place where he will never look on it again. You can sit back in your seat there. You see the picture? God says, I've taken all your sin. See, see here, here's what we think. We think God's forgiven us, but he's got this list. And here's how I know that. When we go to him, here's what we say. God, here I am again. And we think he's in heaven going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One, two, three, four. When we come to him, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see him again. I've taken all your sin, and I've put it somewhere where I will never Look at it again. Fourth picture is the mind. Look what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah writes, God speaking, and he says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for, I love this, for my own sake. And I will not remember 
your sin. We think that's God's version of forgive and forget. But that's not what he's saying here. God cannot forget. You see, if God forgot something, he would choose, he, he would cease to be God. He, he has all knowledge. He can't forget. Then, then what does this mean? Here's what it means. God in his sovereignty chooses to not remember your sin. Spiros Zodiates is a great linguistic scholar. And he took that Hebrew word remember and he gave a definition for that word. Here's the definition of the word remember. That God will not remember our sins. The word remember means to mention, to recall, to think about, to think on, to be remembered, to acknowledge, to make known. Now I want you to think about that in the context of your sin and my sin. Think about your sin. God will never mention your sin. God will never recall your sin. God will never think about your sin. God will never think on your sin. God will never remember your sin. God will not acknowledge your sin. God will not make known your sin. How is that possible? Here's how. This is my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That is not possible because I deserve it. It's not possible because I've earned it. It is only possible through the grace and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and His death for us. He completely satisfied the wrath of God against my sin. Past, present, and future. Today in Christ we have been forgiven. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about, I want you to reflect on what it means to be forgiven. Here's the second statement. The Lord's Supper reminds us that in Christ, we're free. You in Christ forgiven, Christ in you set free. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. That statement about the body of Jesus is a statement about his humanity. And let's just be completely honest. We will never fully comprehend all that is meant by the reality and the truth that God, who existed outside the parameters of time, chose to enter time that He created and take on a human body and live as a man. We will never be able to wrap our minds around the incarnation of Christ, that God became a man. And we could spend all day today talking about the theological ramifications of the reality that God took on humanity for us. But for the sake of time, what I want to do is give you two things that I want you to think about as we think about the body of Christ. Number one, with his body, he modeled real life. And by that, I mean that Jesus modeled for us a life of dependence on the Father. Let me show it to you in two Bible verses. First of all, John 5, 19. Look at this verse. Jesus is speaking. Listen to what he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do... Say the next word out loud. Wait a minute. 
The Son can do nothing. Doesn't that sound vaguely familiar to John chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus said about you and me, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Same word here. Jesus said the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. And then he gives us even more insight. Look at John 14, verse 10. Look at this verse. Jesus said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Hear what Jesus said. Jesus said, With my body, I'm modeling the very life that I've invited you into. Jesus lived in complete dependence on the Father. So much so that Jesus said, When you see my works, when you hear my words, Jesus said, It's not me, it's the Father abiding in me and working through me. That's the same life that he's called us to as followers of Jesus. And that's the the same. The second thing I want you to think about. With his body, he rose again that he could live through us. You see, Christ didn't just die for our sins. He rose again from the dead. And here's what I want you to hear me say. The Christian life is not a life of performance for Jesus. The Christian life is a life of dependence on Jesus. For him to live his life through us. And in his humanity, Jesus modeled that for us. Everything Jesus did, he did out of the overflow of his intimate fellowship with the Father. Now, don't misunderstand me. Jesus was 100% God in the flesh. But he chose in his humanity to lay aside the privileges of being God and live in complete dependence on the Father. And Jesus said, when you hear me, it's not me, it's the Father in me. When you see my works, it's not me, it's the Father in me. And then he rose again from the dead and now desires by his Spirit to live inside of us the same life that he modeled, a life of dependence on him so that the Christian life is not me living for Jesus. It's Christ living in me. It's Christ in you. A life of freedom in Christ. I love the way Jim Cimbala, in one of his books, writes about this principle. Look at it on the screen. Pastor Jim said, a Christ-like life is a mystery. We live the life. It's our voice, our body, and our mind. But it's not really us at all. It's Christ living in us through the Holy Spirit. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, we're going to think about, we're going to remember, we're going to push pause on the busyness of life, and for a few minutes, we're going to think about all that it means that we are forgiven in Christ, and all that it means that we are free to allow Christ to live in and through us because He lives. His body, His blood. Now before we take it together, I want you to look at one more verse of Scripture. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight 28 says, But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. Paul challenges us. That before we take the Lord's Supper, we should always examine. The word examine means to test by questioning. 
Meaning that before we, this is not just a little thing we flippantly run up and do at the end of a service. That's why at Hope, when we take the Lord's Supper together, we always carve out an entire service to unpack it and talk about it because we're to examine our heart. Let me give you a couple of questions you need to ask. Number one, I need to ask some questions about my relationship with the Lord. You can start by asking the question, do I even know God? There's some of you here today that are just visiting or maybe you've been attending, but you don't yet have a personal relationship with God. And you need to hear me say this. There's not one thing that coming up here and taking this bread and this cup, there's not any grace that's going to be earned for you. There's no favor that you're going to get from God for that. We're doing this to obey Jesus and to remember all that's been accomplished. If you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, listen, you don't need a ceremony. You need a Savior. You don't need a ritual. You need a relationship. You don't need a a, a process up here today. What you need is the person that represents this picture. You need Christ. And in a moment, we're going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus. And you can experience the same forgiveness and the same freedom that we've been talking about. You can have that today because of Christ. Do you know God? Second question in your relationship with God you need to ask, is there anything in my life that's not right with God? Examine your heart. Is there any area of my life that needs to be made right with Him? I love the way... um, Roy Hessian writes this in the little book, The Calvary Roads, one of my favorite books. Listen to what Roy Hessian said. Everything that disturbs the peace of God in our hearts is sin. No matter how small it is, and no matter how little like sin it may at first appear to be. What in your life do you just need to just get honest with God about? And embrace God's forgiveness before you take the Lord's Supper. Then the second question you need to ask, not only about your relationship with God... But you need to ask a question about your relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. I need to look not just vertically, but horizontally. Again, listen to this word by Roy Hessian. Now the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross was not only to bring men back into fellowship with God, but also back into fellowship with their fellow men. Everything that comes as a barrier between us and one another, be it ever so small, comes as a barrier between us and God. Is there something wrong and broken in a relationship with a brother or sister in Christ or maybe somebody even in your own family that's here that's a follower of Jesus that you need to go to them and just ask forgiveness and do some reconciliation before you even come today and take the Lord's Supper? That's what Paul says. We're to examine ourselves. So here's what's about to happen. I'm going to ask our worship team to go ahead and come get in place. And I'm going to ask our volunteers that are going to man our Lord's Supper tables to go to those tables. And here's what's about to happen. We're about to do four things at one time, all right? Ready for a little spiritual chaos? We're going to do four things at one time. Here's the first thing that's going to happen. We're going to examine our hearts. In just a moment, some of the worship team is going to, before we stand and sing, some of the worship team is going to just read some scripture over us to give us an opportunity to sit under the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to reveal anything in our heart that needs to be made right with him or with a brother or sister in Christ. So we're just going to have a time of examination. Then we're going to, secondly, have a time of intercession, a time of prayer. We're going to do that in two ways. We're going to take these steps up here on both sides here at the front. You see we've got a cross here on both sides. We're going to open these up like an old-fashioned altar. And maybe today God would speak to your heart through this time of examination. And before you go to one of these tables to take the Lord's Supper... 
you'd like to just come and just kneel here before God and just be alone with Him for a moment, just embrace the foot of the cross and just embrace the forgiveness of God, you can come and you can pray and just be alone with God. We're going to have pastors that are going to be here along the front. Maybe you're here and you have a burden in your job or your health or your family or relationship and you just need somebody to pray with you before you go take the Lord's Supper. You can come and we'd be honored to pray over you as pastors and to lift you to the Lord today. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, when we stand in a moment and begin to move, I'm going to invite you to come to one of these pastors and simply say, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and show you from a Bible how you can experience the forgiveness of God and be made right with God and receive the life of Christ today. Third thing that's going to happen is worship. After we've examined, after we've prayed, we have about seven or eight stations around the room. A couple up here at the front, some in the corners, some in the corners in the back, one right back here in the middle. The plan is for you to go to whichever one's closer. You don't have to come down here to the front. They're all around the room. Whichever one happens to be closest to you, after you've examined your heart and after you've prayed, you go to one of these tables and these families are going to serve you the Lord's Supper. They're going to give you the bread. They're going to give you the cup. And you can take it right there. You can take it back to your seat and and take the Lord's Supper there. It's up to you. You can do that however you choose before the Lord. They're just going to serve it to you. And then after we've worshiped, We're going to return to our seats and we're going to close by singing a song of praise to God. Just like Jesus. He ate it with them and then he went out and they sang a hymn. We're going to sing together a song of praise to God, remembering everything that Christ has done for us. Okay? So, examination, intercession, worship, and then praise. If that makes sense, say amen. If you don't know Christ, you're going to come to one of these pastors in just a moment. Before we stand... I'm going to say a word of prayer. They're going to read some scripture, and then I'll come back and tell you it's time to move. Now, let me say this. This isn't a time to slip out early, all right? This is a time for us to be at the foot of Jesus for a minute together. It's important. It's significant. Let's spend a few minutes together remembering all that Christ did. Let me pray. They're going to read some scripture, then I'll come back and invite you to stand. Father, as we read the word of God (laughs) right now, Lord, may you, by your Holy Spirit, bring conviction. May you bring reconciliation. May you bring encouragement. May you bring instruction. God, teach us. May this time, Lord, be pleasing to you as we examine our hearts. Search us, O God. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Isaiah 53, 3 and 7. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned 
to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 23. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Ephesians 1, 3 through 8. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. 